。鬼岛之音。Ghost Island Media。Hi, this is Waste Not Why Not, a sustainability podcast from Ghost Island Media. I'm Nature Nate, a sustainability consultant based in Taiwan, working on energy, ocean, and waste. Welcome back to a new season. Today we celebrate our third anniversary. Woo! For our listeners and supporters, thank you for sticking with us. For new arrivals, welcome to Waste Not Why Not. Today we talk about something that's somewhat familiar to us all, and something we often take for granted. Buildings, specifically green buildings. What does good look like, and what does wonderful look like? What does a wonderful green building look like? What does a wonderful green hotel look like, or a children's school? We don't know everything yet. It's more of a question of how we use things, how we use those tools. You and I spend ninety percent of our time indoors in buildings. That's our homes, our schools, our offices, gyms, malls, KTVs, internet cafes, dance studios, nightclubs, and factories. The building sector is an often overlooked one when we talk about climate change. If we ever want to reach net zero carbon emissions, we have to figure out how to make our buildings green. Literally, you have to learn to say, "Wait a minute." We are forty percent of the problem. We're not a little piece of the puzzle. We are seventy percent of the electric demand. And we're wasteful. The building sector is wasteful. That's Professor Vivian Lofness of Carnegie Mellon University. Professor Lofness is like the Neil Armstrong of green buildings. She's out there exploring new space. She's been teaching environmental design and sustainability the last forty years. She's co-authored an encyclopedia of sustainable built environments, and she's been on national boards of some really important organizations like the U.S. Green Building Council and the American Institute of Architects, as well as the International Living Futures Institute. She even advises the U.S. government. I also am serving at the moment on the National Academy of Science committee, focused on decarbonizing the United States by 2050 and what we have to do by 2030 to even have a glimpse of getting there. When Professor Lofness joined the committee in 2021, she was the only buildings person. That's crazy. That just goes to show how difficult it is to get folks excited about buildings. We have so much opportunity to cut our demand in half. And actually, to cut it down to 25% of what we use now, and still provide all the functionality and quality of life that we do today. And it turns out it's cheaper to invest in buildings than it is to invest in a hydrogen power station for transportation. So my big message to Congress is always that you've got to understand that buildings are the largest chunk of the problem, not a small little piece of wedge, and that they are the most wasteful chunk. With great opportunity that will improve a broader quality of life. Wow! So the building sector is cheaper to invest in, and it can improve our quality of life. That's magic. So today we're going to find out exactly how magical green buildings can be. What does it mean to be green? How do green buildings make us happier? To answer these questions, we'll talk to some really smart people, like Professor Lofness, and even go see a man who manages a green building. Get ready to nerd out on all things GB.
This episode is sponsored by the American Institute in Taiwan, the de facto embassy for the U.S. Its mission is to advance the interest of the United States and to serve and protect U.S. citizens in Taiwan. So in the past 10 years, I've seen green buildings move from this very niche thing to now almost becoming a mandate. Governments around the world are setting green building standards, making them a requirement. It's almost becoming the norm. But in the early days, being green meant only that you were energy efficient. Professor Loftness again. First place, the word green has broadened dramatically. It used to be that we were talking about energy-efficient buildings, and most of the early work was trying to reduce the energy demand of buildings on the assumption that we were going to run out of oil. I like the oil crisis sort of period. Right. And then we began to realize that it wasn't just energy. We had to seriously worry about water. We might run out of fresh water. We started to worry about the issues of human health and indoor environmental quality. So the green building movement began to focus more and more on light, heat, fresh air, healthy air, acoustics, all of the indoor environmental quality issues. And then we started to worry about materials. Mm. We're extracting materials at a rate that nature cannot replenish them. Mm. And we're not very effective at recapturing those materials. So they end up in landfill and waste streams and put on boats and shipped halfway around the world. I think most recently, the last layer that's been added onto the green movement is equity mm. and responsibility of the sustainable and green designers to actually address inequity in the built environment. So in a nutshell, green buildings are one way towards sustainability. And what exactly are green buildings? Well, there are many names and certifications, but at a basic level, it's a building that is designed with ecological principles in mind. This could take many forms. Efficient lighting from LEDs, rainwater collection, smart heating and cooling, or new technologies to retain and redirect heat. Green buildings also include how we interact with nature. Are there large windows to let in light? Is it near a natural habitat? Is there access to public transit? The list is long, but green building certifications cover from where it's built, to how it's built, to how it's operated, and what you do with the waste it creates, including the building itself. When we do green buildings right, we save energy, water, and natural resources, and also our savings. It also gives us better indoor environments, which means we're going to the hospital less. This makes me happy. I hate going to the doctor. Now, buildings are expensive, and we use them for a long time. So to maximize their green effects, we need to take advantage of the free resources we find in nature, something humans have done for thousands of years. Well, now we need to do it again. And that's when Professor Loftness brought up something really fun, something I think that'll excite everyone. She calls it environmental surfing. It's the idea that we use nature's free resources to power our lives as much as possible, like the sun, the wind, pretty obvious, right? Well, surfing is so much fun when you think about it. I mean, everyone loves to surf. The question is, can we surf the environment for free energy? Hmm. And if you look at Taiwan, number one, we can surf the environment for light. From the first moment that the sun comes up to the last moment the sun comes down, we shouldn't have to turn on any electric lights in well-designed green buildings. Wow. I'm sure all the Taiwanese schools that are over 50 or 60 years old, they were all designed around daylight. And the ceilings were high and the windows were designed to make sure that the very furthest desk got enough light so the kids could see their materials. You know, nature has offered us a free source. Right. And if we want to get to net zero buildings, we want to use that free source. Take advantage of the free fusion reactor that we have in the sky, basically. Exactly. exactly. 
Another free source that nature gives us is wind. Wind is a magical cooling source. Mm. And breezy spaces, the design of breezeways, the design of external circulation in, in universities that have gaps in the building, the wind will just flow right through those gaps and make a really nice breezeway. In, in Texas, they're called dog runs. Okay. The dog has figured out where it's shady and breezy. <laughs> All right. It's the gap between two buildings that is exactly the best shade and the best breeze, right? So nature gives us free cooling, it gives us free light. If we need to, it can give us free water if we learn how to capture, mm. at least using it for non-potable uses. So using it for landscape, using it for toilet flushing, using it as secondary water sources. Right. So all of this is about environmental surfing. Interesting, I really like that concept. As someone from California, I think I can push that out. For heat, light, air, cooling, heating, water, Nature's offered us a lot, and we're not using it very well anymore. Yeah, it seems obvious. You know, people throughout history just saw these free benefits, gifts, if you will, and then we thought, oh, we have electricity. We don't need these. We can just live in gray concrete blocks and live in our little caves and type at our desks. But it seems like it's changing. Exactly. You know, when you talked early on about is energy efficiency also about delight and happiness, Environmental surfing brings those two things together. It basically says if we embrace nature as a free conditioning system for as long as it can, we all of a sudden get delight in our lives that we lost because we sealed ourselves into sort of a thermos bottle and turned on the air conditioner. I know some folks that live in sealed environments. They're astronauts on the space station. Sealing ourselves up works very well for living in space, but if aliens saw us doing this on planet Earth, they would think we are crazy. There is a giant fusion reactor sitting in our solar system. We call it the sun. It sends down energy to our planet for free. It moves wind and waves. We have tons of free energy raining down every day. And so what happens with building designs that take advantage of this free energy? How have they changed over time? Let's take windows, for example. I want that nice big window in my house so I get plenty of free sunlight, saving energy. But I also don't want my house to overheat. Otherwise, I have to crank up the AC. So I have my windows tinted, but then it's too dark and I can't see outside. So what do I do? I scale back the shading? We want the light, we want the view, but we may not want the heat. Hmm. And in some climates we want the heat, but in a lot of climates you may actually want to have windows that are selective, that they separate out the wavelength of heat from the wavelength of light. And you can do that today. 25 years ago, we couldn't be selective in our windows. And it really was the automobile industry that made the push. If you remember early uh, cars that started having dark windows because people didn't want to have the cars get too hot, they couldn't actually see the red, green, yellow on the traffic light. Sounds dangerous. It was dangerous. They couldn't see if it turned green. And so the car industry went back to the glazing industry and said, you know, we need windows where you can still see the red, green, yellow. And the window just said, oh, well, we could split the wavelength of heat and light. There are two different wavelengths. We can put a coating on a window that'll cut out the heat and keep your car cool, but let in the light. So that was the revolution that allowed us to now think about windows as something that are selective, that you can choose when you want heat and which facades you want heat. I love that there's this shared connection between the auto industry and architecture. On Waste Not, Why Not, we've talked about electric vehicles in the past, and there's a new one coming as part of this series. These kind of interconnections exist all around us. We can look to nature for inspiration and copy what we see animals and plants doing, or we can look across industries and see what other types of technologies are there. 
a lot can be learned from sharing across experiences and diversity. And we won't discover these solutions to protect the environment just by talking to ourselves. So let's get out there and see what we can all learn together. Let's take a break here. And when we come back, we're going to visit a man who helps make buildings green. Welcome back to Waste Not, Why Not? We've been talking to Professor Vivian Loftness of Carnegie Mellon University about environmental surfing. Now we're going to hit pause on that tape, and let's go see a man who takes care of green buildings and find out how does he do it? How do we think about environmental surfing in an actual, real-life building? We head to the campus of AIT, the American Institute in Taiwan, our de facto embassy here in Taiwan. Let's go meet Lee Carnell, the facilities manager. Originally from Memphis, Tennessee, this is the fifth continent Lee's worked on with the U.S. State Department. My first job, I was in Pretoria, South Africa. And then from there, I was in Asuncion, Paraguay, Bucharest, Romania, Tegucigalpa, Honduras most recently. And then I've been assigned here to AIT. The U.S. government has around 22,000 buildings all around the world and has this pretty cool goal of becoming carbon neutral in all of those buildings by 2050. As of now, all overseas buildings must have at least a sustainability certificate of LEED Silver. Now, LEED, L-E-E-D, is a certification system designed by the U.S. Green Buildings Council. It's pretty widely used all around the world. The certifications go from certified to silver to gold to platinum, like the Olympics, but with a little extra. The AIT building in Taipei has a LEED Silver standing, which is pretty good. This LEED Silver building has things like LED lights, motion sensors to activate smart lighting, energy management for its staff to reduce power consumption, a pretty cool drip irrigation system combined with rainwater collection, some solar panels, a community garden, a recycling program, interior designs with minimal harmful chemicals. It's also close to public transit and has facilities to support showering after you bike to work. And while it's not the only LEED building in Taiwan, it has a really rare feature that I love. I'll give you a hint. It's about nature preservation. The AIT compound covers six and a half hectares of land, and a surprising 75% of that will never be developed. It's just going to stay nature. Pretty cool. There's a lot that goes into planning a building and thinking about, hey, how can we make this the least impactful construction project? What are we going to do with all the waste we produce during construction? The land that we have, how can we best use it so it won't be adversely impactful to the environment or to the ecosystem around? It's like a jungle over there. Yes, we actually have it fenced off. So we are maintaining that undeveloped. And in a lot of ways, you can't even go in the space unless you're four-legged or winged or something like that. We want to leave that as natural as possible. Wow, right in the urban core. Right. That's one part of site selection. Where can we have enough space to build and still do our part as a global community member? Okay, so where the building is and how you preserve the nature around it matters a lot. And as I continue this conversation with Lee, I wanted to take the road less taken. You already know about LED lights and motion sensors. They help us save energy. And in fact, new technologies like these help AIT save 75% of its electricity just from lighting alone. 
I wanted to know about materials. We know that wood is more sustainable than concrete. Concrete is one of the most energy and carbon intensive materials that's used in the building sector. You emit carbon extracting it, you emit carbon creating it and building with it. And it seems like we just keep pouring more and more of this stuff for every new property development. But what are some other factors we forget to consider when it comes to materials? Materials are very interesting. When you think back to really fancy buildings that were built in the mid 20th century, no one thought about, hey, I want to use the wood from down the street. They're like, no, I want to use marble from Italy. I want to import from the same quarry that Leonardo da Vinci used. And so then they had to ship it. They had to mine the stuff, ship it across the ocean, ship it across the land. These are big blocks. Yeah. Okay. And so that was the way people thought, you know, and as part of LEED, what we have done is we tried to increase where we could locally sourced materials. And so we have a good percentage of our materials came from within 500 miles of this site. You do the best you can, right? I would love to see what a green building looks like 20 years from now, mm. because I think the materials will change. I think that we will see advancements, but we're doing the best with pushing the envelope as we can at this time. Right. We're human. <laughs> right. We don't know everything yet, but I think it was more of a question of how we use things. Mm. We either use recycled materials in the building or we made sure that our waste was recycled. Mm. Um, and I think I have a percentage here if you give me a second to find it. 22% of the total building materials were manufactured out of recycled products. Wow. So almost a quarter of this building we tried to use recycled materials for. So that's pretty incredible. Let's jump back to our tape with Professor Loftness to hear about how building materials have been changing. Remember, we said Professor Loftness co-wrote an encyclopedia on the built environment. Kind of an expert. We should be very conscious of how much concrete we use. We should basically only use concrete for those areas where we absolutely need either the structural or the fire or the accessibility, but we shouldn't be just pouring it out of buckets everywhere, right? As if there's no tomorrow, because it's incredibly carbon intensive. It also uses a lot of limestone and limestone is one of those raw materials that we are depleting faster than nature can produce. Mm. It is actually a material that has sequestered millions of years of carbon. Oh. So the more limestone we crush, the more carbon we release into the atmosphere. And then we use very high temperature processes that also puts carbon. So we're hitting a triple whammy by using concrete with abandon. So we have to shift away from that. Wood is pretty magical by comparison to concrete and steel and aluminum because in the process of growing wood, you sequester carbon. Oh, interesting. Yeah, you can actually, like bamboo, you can grow fast. And so the Scandinavians are now counting the number of weeks of forest production that's necessary for each building. Wow. You know, they'll say this is a six week building. We can produce the structural material in this building in six weeks. And they know they're using a material that will sequester some carbon. So we're actually helping the globe reduce its carbon footprint by building wooden buildings. Now there are some limits. So you can actually build, I think the tallest wood building at the moment is probably about 20 stories. Wow, okay. 
But there are definitely architects and engineers that are trying to find a way to build the 50-story wood structure. So we have to do wood well, and we have to change the way we think about buildings. It really sounds like a total revolution, which is the way we interact with buildings. Um, before, materials like concrete and plastic made it really easy to just make it square, basically, and live in it. But we're running into those limits, and now we need to kind of think with nature and also set limits on ourselves so we're not just recreating these same problems. It's important to mention here that the wood that goes to make these buildings, these aren't taken from rainforests. These are from tree farms, they're sustainably grown, and they're done purposely for buildings. And thinking back to Professor Loftness' idea of environmental surfing, that is, using free resources from nature to power our lives, I wanted to know how the AIT uses something that's very familiar to Taiwan, say, the rain. For instance, the American embassy in Dubai has an extensive solar panel system that generates power, and it's basically full blast sun there every day. So what about Taipei and all of its rain? Does AIT use that? We definitely have two things that we do. I think you've made a really good point when it comes to the importance of rain for Taipei. We do rainwater harvesting for our irrigation system, so it's all purified and brought to a standard that we can use it. So we capture it, and it goes into a tank, and then we pump from that tank to mm. water all the grounds, which is a lot of water. It's great. Right. So we're not using city water to do that. We would only do that under the most severe circumstances, and I don't imagine that ever happening. The other thing we do is during a big storm, we capture the rain that does go into the gutters on compound. They go into retention tanks. Oh, and so the tanks hold the water and it either will be percolated, I guess is the word I'll use, into the ground and the soil and over time, or we can then use that back into our system. So we can do almost like a closed loop on that. Interesting. So it's kind of like your own aquifer? Like an artificial, artificial aquifer? Artificial aquifer? Yeah, yeah. And, and for people that don't know, that's how the ground works. Uh, when it rains, the water seeps into the soil, and that's like when you pull it out from a well. So you're kind of creating your own well, in a sense. Pretty much for specific purposes, but the goal is to reduce the amount of water that we're discharging into the city sewage or the storm water drains. Right. So that makes everything better, right? Because yeah. you're, you're reducing your need to pull out from the dams, which is going to make sure that Taipei stays water secure. Right. And I heard last year there was a big drought here and there were some concerns on Yeah, quite the paradox in a place that rains so much. These are pretty neat tricks that green buildings in Taiwan can utilize. And so technology matters a lot. It gives us better tools. But that's just one way to make a building less harmful to the environment. When describing green buildings, so far we focused a lot on the impact of the environment and preventing harm. But what if the building itself was a part of nature or supported nature inside? There's this really interesting field called biophilic design. It incorporates living elements of nature into building designs. Think living plant walls, indoor food gardens, or even super open concept buildings that blend right into outdoor animal habitats. I'll let Professor Loftness explain. The, the whole movement of biophilic design, which is emerging now as one of the sort of frontiers of the green design movement, is about bringing nature inside. And yes, it would be living walls where you'd put beautiful planted walls as the entire end wall of a cafeteria in a school. Mm. The other thing, in addition to plants and living walls that the biophilic design community is focused on is using more natural materials, mm. essentially trying to replace plastics with wood and a more natural fabrics, things that can be grown and made into finished surfaces. So there's a lot more focus on using materials 
And there's a wonderful expression in the book Cradle to Cradle, which was written by Michael Browngart and Bill McDonough, where they literally try to describe all materials need to either be part of a biological cycle or an industrial cycle, right? So if you buy an iPhone or a laptop, it should never go into landfill. It always should be disassembled and taken back to another industrial product. On the biological cycle, we're looking for materials that can become fertilizer or be consumed. Mm-hmm. The best fabrics are ones that you could ostensibly eat. You could eat the fabric on your chair. You know it's a healthy fabric then. It's not putting toxins into you and into the people who make it and into the landfill. It's basically using a material that's been made out of natural sources that can go back to nature. So we would want to aim for like an edible couch you would. or like a chewable office chair, right. just in terms of safety. Yeah, that's exactly what you want to do. It's not just safety for you in your building and your home. It's safety for the workers who are producing those chairs. Mm. And it's safety for the workers that are handling the waste stream when it leaves your house, right? So we're trying to protect from cradle to cradle. Not There's no grave. We're trying to protect all the people that are involved in the manufacturing, purchasing, maintenance, and then ultimate recycling or reusing of of our products. Right. Moving towards reincarnation instead of just sort of a graveyard mentality of products. And so thinking about the longevity of products, while plastic products do last longer, it doesn't mean that we want them for longer. Every time there's a new Marvel movie or a new Disney movie, another plastic version of the same characters is created, made with petrochemicals, mass-produced, and sold. And then we just throw them away with so much other plastic. So the fact that they're long-lasting isn't even that meaningful. So essentially, green buildings are eco-friendly in their complete life cycle, from the ground they're built on to the materials they're built with and what we put in them ultimately. But there's something else. Before we find out what you and I can do to help make more buildings green, I want to touch about the last item, the one we haven't talked about yet, that was on Professor Loftnist's list from the very beginning. That's equity. For one, the Living Building Challenge, which is the International Living Futures Institute, has one of their major seven pedals is about equity. They suggest no new land, that we have got to stop taking indigenous land and turning it into buildings. We have got to leave nature alone and we've got to go back and fix the pieces that we've done badly. There also is the well standard, and the well standard is about human health, and they're beginning to look at elimination of waste because a lot of our waste is toxic, and we have a tendency to dump our waste on unsuspecting populations who can't fight it. Hmm. We also have an obligation to make sure that the quality of the water that we're delivering to buildings is going to be healthy. Designing for mobility, making sure that people can get to their buildings and that there's adequate transit and then adequate physical exercise. So it's amazing to me, both as an educator and a practitioner, how much broader our responsibilities have come in the green building movement from an early start on energy efficiency to water, materials, indoor environments, and now equity. All right, let's take another break here. And when we come back, let's find out what you and I can do to help make more buildings green. Hey, did you like our new theme tune? For those in Taiwan, you'd recognize that as a remix of the Garbage Truck song. And uh, I didn't make it, spoiler alert. There's a team. There's a team working on this show. We have producers, music people, editors. And to support that team, we need we need money, unfortunately. And the best way to support the show is to go to patreon.com slash waste not why not and set up monthly donations. 
There's also member benefits. You can suggest ideas for the show and talk with us. So going down to patreon.com slash waste not why not and become a monthly donator today. Welcome back to Waste Not Why Not. We've been in the weeds of sustainable living with Professor Vivian Loftness of Carnegie Mellon University and Lee Carnell, a green building manager at the American Institute in Taiwan. For the rest of the time we have today, we're going to be finding out, and this is my favorite part of every episode, how to get involved. So green buildings aren't just architects. They're designers. They're real estate companies. They're heavy government regulations. But it can be difficult as an individual to feel like you can participate. How do you make a building green? Are you going to make a building? How do regular folks like us participate in making buildings more sustainable? Professor Loftness again. Well, I think an entry point, and not just if you want to make green buildings, but if you want to be the client for green buildings, if we wanted to get developers to really start caring about more environmentally sound and green buildings, the consumer has to ask for it. They have to say, look, I want an apartment that is very low energy. And actually in Europe, they have mandatory labels. If you rent an apartment, it tells you not only the price of the monthly rent, it tells you the price of the monthly energy bill. Hmm. Thereby, you could say, well, I'm willing to spend 2000 a month on this really beautiful apartment, but this particular one has $600 a month in energy, and I'm not willing to pay 2600 And all of a sudden, people are comparing things not just based on the monthly rental rate, but rental plus utilities. If we want to start to pull... We want everyone to start being aware of what does good look like? Hmm. And what does wonderful look like? What does a wonderful green building look like? What does a wonderful green hotel look like or a children's school or or an office building? So I think the more even the layperson begins to differentiate, take photographs of the eco hotel that you stayed at and tell everyone about how fabulous it was. Mm. You know, you ate outdoors, basically, even though you were under a canopy from the rain and the sun, you were basically sitting on an open air terrace overlooking the landscape and tell people about these incredibly environmentally exciting places. And I think if we can raise awareness by photographing all of our favorite places and sharing them, I think we'll see more and more green buildings. And for those of you who are just starting out, starting your career, and maybe you want to focus on green buildings, what should you do? Well, here's Lee Carnell. Oh my gosh, I mean, where do you start? I mean, there's so many. Everything. The landscape <laughs> is so wide. You could focus on very small niche fields of study, or you could be very broad and just look at policy mm. and, and thinking about things like that. I mean, there's room for everyone. There can be technology, engineer. You don't have to invent the new solar panel or energy cell. You don't have to do that. You can be the person that goes, hey, we could recycle these products that we never thought of recycling before. Mm. And uh, this is how I can do it. I'm always looking up new stuff and I see people coming up with great ideas for things that people before were just disregarding or not even paying attention to. So I think Mm. it's just being aware and you can always find a space to thrive in this field for sure. And I think those things are going to continue getting better. I mean, Mm. we see those with battery technology, you know, do we get to a point where we are storing energy on compound and we're Mm. using that later? I know that there are companies that have that technology where they just recycle the water that you're using in the shower and it's a closed loop. So you don't have to do that. I mean, is that ready to be deployed in AIT? Probably not. 
but I see that coming and I see the measurements for efficiency go even higher where mm. we're saying the expectation is this today and we'll just be shocked at what the expectation is in the future. I think the future is bright when it comes to that. And I think it's just a matter of us being conscious and really fighting to make sure that those are priorities mm, going mm. forward. Because without that, we could just be stuck in where we are. We always need to be pushing to see what the next discovery or the next green technology or green practice is better said. The way we do things is not necessarily what we do things, it's how we use those tools. Professor Loftness agrees that the future is hopeful. The students are so much more engaged in sustainability Mm. than the older generation. I mean, they're so aware of climate change and they're really searching for the answers. And for those who come in the building engineering and architectural community, they're looking for the next generation of buildings and building retrofits. I mean, they know that you have to go back and fix a lot of buildings. So I find that the students are more aware than ever. I'm still teaching because there's so much demand for things that I care about right now from the student population. And what do these students sort of go on to do after they finish learning from you, learning with you? What are the types of careers they're getting into? It used to be that a lot of our international students came to the U.S. and stayed in the U.S., but they're beginning to start to say, you know what, I'm going to go back home and make a difference. They want to go and work on a whole new development of a new product. Where do I go to do research on fungi or algae bioreactors? So some of them are going to think tanks and research units and laboratories, but a majority of them are going back into practice and some into consulting. A few will go into the entertainment. They'll look at, okay, what is this going to mean to Disney or what is it going to mean to Gucci, right? Can I parlay this into a future in which what seem to be not very socially conscious organizations all of a sudden become? Yeah. So be an advocate, tell people, tell these stories, these new narratives about how we interact with our world. Maybe just to conclude, I think a fun question would be, how do green buildings make you happy? You as Vivian Loftness. (laughs) Yeah. So, okay. So as you know, all of us have been sort of home working for about two years, right? I have the luxury of being able to surround myself with plants. I sit with windows on two sides overlooking a park and I live in a house that faces the sun and the sun, at least two thirds of the time, will provide enough heat for my house that I don't need to have the heating system on. And I love working in the sun. I just love it, right? It gives me joy in the morning and looking out at at landscape and breathing the air and having plants around me with color, being able to open a window when it gets to be spring and listen to the sounds of the birds and kids playing on the playground. I mean, all this reconnection with life, which is a fundamental statement of biophilia, is that man has an innate need for connecting to life. And we need that. And if we sequester ourselves in a basement room with artificial light and mechanical air conditioning, we've lost the connection to life, right? So it doesn't bring us joy. And I, I get joy every day from being reconnected to nature. Wow, that's an inspiring message and a good reminder of the importance of the sun coming from rainy Taipei, where we are actually recording this in a basement with air conditioning and artificial lights. So I hope we can relocate into a green building soon and join in your happiness of living in these green and living buildings. Wonderful. It was great talking to you. I love it. Bye-bye. 
Thanks to Professor Vivian Loftness for sharing so much about green buildings. If you want to keep up to date on the future of green buildings, do follow Professor Loftness's work with biophilic designs. She also works with a smart surface coalition that's trying to move the world past concrete. And lastly, you can read her report to U.S. President Biden. It's the first report on sustainable buildings and their role in net zero for the U.S. National Academy. We'll provide a link to that in the show notes. Thank you, Lee Carnell of AIT, and please also take the time to thank your mechanic, thank your facilities lead or their engineer for doing hard work. They're the invisible geniuses behind the scenes that make our buildings safe, comfortable, and green. That's going to wrap up our episode. For our full interview with Lee Carnell of the American Institute in Taiwan, head on over to our YouTube channel at Ghost Island Media under the playlist, Waste Not, Why Not? For you Patreon supporters, we'll send it directly into your feed. That's it for today. In the next episode, we visit a man who went from NASA to Tesla to building his own electric vehicle company right here in Taiwan. I'm Nature Nate, and this is Waste Not, Why Not, a Ghost Island media production based in Taipei, Taiwan. Emily Wai Wu is our producer and story editor. Jared Williams is our amazing intern. Yu Chen is our audio editor. This episode was done in collaboration with the American Institute in Taiwan. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.